This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 114. And the quote of the day is from Charles Buxton, who said, You will never find time for anything. You must make it. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers and industry professionals. Information, education, and motivation for drumming and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Rafini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. And I've been thinking about taking this podcast to the next level and doing seven days a week. And it would sort of be a different type of podcast. Uh, I'm going to keep the interviews on Mondays, and I'm going to be doing the other stuff that I normally do on Thursdays with the Ask Rafini show and all that. But I also want to do like five to ten minute sessions uh, seven days a week, or maybe even five days a week, where I talk about everything from goal setting, goal achievement, uh, some different different music topics, business topics, entrepreneurship uh, inside of the music business and all that kind of stuff. And if you're interested in that, uh, I need I got two questions for you. One, yes or no, if you're interested or not. And the second question is whether you want them together with the rest of all the the other podcasts or you would want them separate in its own podcast. So shoot me an email, nick at drummersresource.com, and you can just put the words yes or no, and then you can put separate or together. I'll make it really easy for you. Or shoot me a tweet at drummersrsource and just say yes and then or no, and then say together or separate. That's all I need to know. This session is brought to you by Drum Magazine, and if you're looking to play better fast, I suggest that you check them out every single month. They have a ton of great information, including some of the best educational articles you'll find on the net, like 43 shuffles that every drummer should know. You can subscribe today and learn more at drummagazine.com. As you guys know, I've been playing DW drums for years and years and years, and the reason why is because they make great handcrafted drums here in the United States, but also they support great drumming initiatives like this podcast all over the world. And I'm really, really a fan of the stuff that they're doing over there. Be sure to check them out at dwdrums.com and learn more about them, their drums, and their culture. This episode is also sponsored by Evans Level 360. And drummers are talking about the new Level 360 technological revolution in drum heads that allows for fast, precise tuning and perfect fit every time. Level 360 ensures balanced contact with the bearing edge every time for an incredible tuning range. Be sure to check them out at evansdrumheads.com and use the hashtag Level360. Now, the interview that I have today, I'm really, really excited about. I have Gordy Knutson from the Steve Miller Band. And for those of you who don't know about Gordy, he's been playing with Steve Miller Band for years, uh, over 20 years, and has also written a ton of different books. He has a uh, one that I studied out of in college called the open close technique. And I actually met Gordy 13 years ago or 14 years ago, something like that at PASIC. And he was extremely nice to me. And, and we talked a lot about the open close technique and some, and some different things. And I wasn't expecting him to remember that because I was just, you know, this young college kid, but, um, his, his kindness and generosity really stuck out to me, and he's always sort of been on my radar to get back on the podcast, and he's done some amazing things. He started a percussion, um, a percussion department at McNally Smith College of Music, and we're going to talk about all of that, so let's get into it with the man himself, Mr. Gordy Knutson. Hey, Gordy, thanks so much for doing this. I appreciate it. I'm glad to do it, Nick. No problem. So you are uh, officially the the second person that we've had from McNally Smith uh, College of Music on here, which is great. So I appreciate oh. I appreciate you being here. We had State Dave Stanich as well, like I mentioned off air. Cool. And I think there's only I've had a father son duo, and I've had one person on here twice. So now you're you're another you're another trendsetter as well. <laughs> Oh, okay, that's good. So I always like to get a little bit of backstory on the guests, and I know that you know there's information online about you. Um, so if you could just give a brief description, who you are, what you do, and then we'll really get into your career because there's a lot of things that, that I want to talk about in this interview. So just, just a quick background of, of where you're coming from so people can get a frame of reference. Okay. Well, uh, my name is Gordy Knutson. I've played drums uh, professionally since I was 17 years old. I started playing clarinet, pardon me, uh, piano in grade school, uh, switched to clarinet in junior high school, switched to drums in uh, high school, and then, uh, where, as I said, worked my first pro gig at 17. 
I'm 61 years old right now. Uh, my last gig, my gig, my main gig for the last about 28 years has been playing drums with the Steve Miller Band. Outside of uh, playing activities, um, I run a little company called gk-music.com, which is a website as well. Uh, we make and sell ultraphones, which are a high-isolation stereo headphone designed originally starting for just for drummers, but I found a lot of other musicians are using them too. And the other thing I'm involved with is McNally Smith College of Music. About the same time I got involved with the Steve Miller Band, there was a very small Votech school in Minneapolis that uh, basically did guitars and basses and wanted to start a drum program. So they approached me about building a program, and uh, I've been there basically ever since. The school has morphed from a tiny little uncredited diploma school into a full-on college, which uh, you can get a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in performance. Hmm. That's awesome. That's great to hear the the progression of it. And I and I'd like to talk about McNally Smith because like I said we had Dave on here. We didn't get too much into into the college itself and you were the founder of the percussion department uh at McNally Smith. So yes. let's let's talk about about how that came about and then uh you know a little bit about the program so people out there that are listening if they want to go to the school. Okay. Well, when I first started um playing my first pro gig was in 1973 um and um i i was i was good i'm not saying i'm god's gift to drums but i obviously had talent because i was working a lot mm-hmm. i also was networked in with a bunch of guys um who were also doing studio work so i started doing uh jingles by when i was 19 years old and there was a thriving jingle business here in minneapolis put about five producers to work for, and you could make a fair amount of money. So I was doing two, three, four dates a week and playing uh, at nights in nightclubs. As time progressed uh, in the early 80s, once the drum machine kind of came in, I could see kind of the writing on the wall, uh, and I thought, you know, um, maybe I should uh, get involved with... uh, some other income stream because I could start seeing that the the jingle work income was starting to decline. Mm-hmm. So I uh, started to teach, and I found I really liked teaching. And it kind of, in, I was as I was teaching, I would say, geez, I wish we had some material like this. And I started to also write my teaching materials. I taught privately for probably two, three years, and then um, a friend of mine who I had done a tour with little regional tour with a Brazilian piano player named Manfredo Fest, who was on the Concord Jazz label, uh, was teaching bass at this little Votech guitar-based school, which was originally called Guitar Center. He said, these guys that are running this wanted to start a drum program, They so you would like to talk to them. So I went over and talked to them. At this point, I had, I had just joined the Steve Miller Band, and um, uh, I got involved with... Um, uh, some touring, so I explained I have this road gig, but I really want to be involved with this because I figured that this road gig would go away at some point, and that right. school would be a good thing to be involved with. Mm-hmm. So one thing led to another, <clears throat> and we started, I got involved with the school, we were running it, and uh, wrote the curriculum for it, and as time moved forward, it changed its name, had to change its name, obviously, from Guitar Center to uh, Music Tech. And then we recalled that for about 10 years, and then we moved again over to uh, St. Paul and did a name change using the two owners' names, Jack McNally and Doug Smith, so it's McNally Smith College. And um, basically, like I say, I've been involved there. Oh, I have call waiting. Isn't this great? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Hopefully that's not going to screw up anything. So anyway, that's that's kind of my involvement with the school. I really enjoy... The um, uh, the teaching, I, I I really find it's made me, I've gotten as much out of it as the students do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I, I taught for years. I don't teach as much as I used to, um, but that's the one thing that I really got out of it was, you know, 
I'm teaching my students, but I'm thinking, man, I'm, I feel like I should be paying them half the time. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting so much valuable information out of it and also learning how to deliver information in a new way because not everyone learns the same. So it's definitely a valuable lesson for, for both people in a lesson. You, you know? Yes, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, – it makes you uh, – several things. It's like you know about something, but maybe you quite haven't got it under your hands. So you can't sit down and demonstrate it kind of haphazardly or in a, you know, you want to sound good. You want to be able to play this stuff. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing that kicked my butt was having the stuff together that I said that they should have together. I had to get together. Right, right. Okay. <laughs> the communication skills, as you mentioned, which is which was really interesting because you find you have to find um, analogies, metaphors, and um uh, many different ways of saying the same thing, and you find certain ways work with certain people, and other ways work with other people. So that that's kind of a fascinating thing. Sure. And then the the third part of it is they ask great questions sometimes, and it really makes you think. You know, why am I doing this this way? And then it really gets you to defend or you know really think about what it is you're telling them and what you're doing mm -hmm. so it's 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 a win-win all around and then when you watch the growth of the student uh that's man that's the most rewarding thing sure and i you know i've, I've mentioned this numerous times on the podcast but i think that if you don't love teaching i don't think that you should be doing it amen do you agree with me on that amen I couldn't agree more because you have to you have to genuinely care about what it is. Mm -hmm. um, if you've taken a bunch of drum lessons, I'm sure you have a few examples in your mind of the teacher that you didn't want to have. You know that right. you who was burned out or whatever. I remember distinctly when the first lesson I took with Marv Dahlgren. Um, he blew my mind, and I just, I absolutely loved it. And just the way he thought, there was a, he just showed me something, just opened up some huge doors, man. And he, Marv is one of these guys, he's 90, he's going to be 91 years old, I believe, this year. And he was teaching at school up until year before last. Wow. Yeah, so, and he was great, man. I just, he was such an inspiring guy. I got him involved very early on when I got involved with uh, the school, and I loved, at that point, he was in his 60s, and I loved watching the kids come out going, just freaked out, because here was a guy who was as old as their grandpa, who could play louder and faster than they could. Yeah. <laughs> That's so the amazing was, thing but, that you see all the you know older guys that can play fast, and it's like, well, you know, maybe there's something there. Maybe it, you should look into the technique of what they're doing, not you know, not just thinking that it's it. You have to have these huge muscles and and all this stuff to play this this fast stuff. Absolutely, you know? absolutely. And so, go ahead. Uh, no, and you know, coincidentally, I I love doing this podcast, and I love teaching through the podcast, and I love connecting with. I have a, a fairly large audience with this podcast, and I love teaching through the podcast and and in group settings. But I don't like one on one teaching. I don't know why. I don't I don't get as much fulfillment out of it. So this is sort of my way of of taking all the knowledge I've had over the years and and sharing it with everyone, but not on a one-on-one -on -one setting. And that's actually why I stopped teaching. I just said, you know what? I, I still have one student that I've been, that's been with me for a very long time, but I don't, I don't take on any new students because I don't feel that I feel like I'm doing a disservice to the, to the students that I have. So mm -hmm. I, I choose not to do it. And I choose to do this, uh, the drummer's resource instead. So. Mm -hmm. it's, it is, it is a different dynamic when you're teaching, one-on-one -on -one versus in uh, a group setting mm -hmm. and with the school we actually do both and for a group setting you it takes a different it's a different skill set uh and it's you have to it's a little more of a presentation thing mm -hmm. and it can be a little trickier because you'll have uh some people get things right away some people don't and you have this um you've got to kind of 
keep you want to keep everybody on the same page roughly right. so sometimes depending on what you're doing at group things can be difficult because you may see someone in the group that you really need to drill down with to help them solve their problem but you can't do it in that setting right you know, right you have to wait to the one-on-one thing yeah and i you know i struggled with that for a while you know i said does that does that make me a bad person or does that make me a you know, uh, a, not a real musician because I don't want to teach one-on-one lessons. And, and, and so, but I, I struggled with it for a while because I didn't feel like there was a way for me to give back, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And, uh, once and then, now that I have this site, I feel like I can give back and I can actually impact more people through the site. So I, I think I'm finally at peace with that decision, but I did struggle with it for a while. That's great. You know, it's important to find, to, um, it's very important in life to understand yourself and what makes you happy and what you because that's what you should be doing. You mm-hmm. can make the world a better place. Happy people do good work. Exactly. Exactly. I couldn't agree with you more on that. There's not a lot of there's not too many miserable people out there that are making other people's lives better. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Uh now you had touched on something about um about saying how you noticed that the you know the drum machine was coming onto the scene and the and the work was starting to dry up and you sort of saw the the writing on the wall, what is your opinion now of people that want to do what you do? They say, okay, I, I want to tour and I want to you know play with different artists and things like that. Do you think that they should also pursue other income streams in the music business as well? Well, um, man, that's a loaded question because. Um, Yes, I mean, the, the, at the end of the day, when I started out, I didn't come from a musical family, so mm-hmm. I really didn't know any full-time professional musicians other than the the teachers I met, and then as I go out and get got older and was able to get in and, and meet guys, I didn't really know any professional musicians. Marv Dahlgren was the principal percussionist of the Minnesota Orchestra, so he had a full-time job, um, so uh, I kind of jumped into this with uh, just strictly wanting to survive. Mm-hmm. I took every gig under the sun. I did everything. My my attitude was, um, if it pays, you know, I want to learn how to play it. If I got into, I got into some situations where I wasn't really musically happy, but I did learn some stuff mm-hmm. and made myself um, try to be as a. Uh, as chameleon-like as possible and fit into all these different things. And it it helped me income-wise, but it also helped me stylistic-wise so that when I got the opportunity to do studio work, when someone, because you might be coming, okay, today we got to play some jazz stuff. Today we're playing some rock stuff, some funk stuff, folk stuff. You had to be able to, to, to fit in and sound like you belong. So that was my initial thing of just like, okay, let's do everything we can to survive and make a living. As time has moved forward, the world has changed so much that now, um, you know, the good news is there's tremendous change going on in the music business. Mm-hmm. The bad news is there's tremendous change going on in the music <laughs> right. business. Um, you can look at this two ways. Um, one way is when you have periods of history like this where a major change is going on, uh, there are many new opportunities that can arise. The downside is that a lot of the tried-and-true opportunities start to uh, disappear because they're just not happening anymore, less and less. So, for example, I even, uh, last year we got done, uh, we did a co-headline tour with Journey, uh, so our opening act was Tower Power. So if you came to the show, you saw 30 minutes of Tower Power, you saw 80 minutes of the Steve Miller Band, and 90 minutes of Journey. And we had uh, averaging about 15,000 people a show. Um, nice. My understanding was that um, to do these kinds of venues, we had to do the double bills to put enough people in the seats. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as time moves on here, there's I don't know if we're going to see a lot of that stuff. You know, artists that have been around, for example, as long as Steve Miller. And one fundamental reason for that is I think there's a giant cultural thing going on right now and that humans are actually changing. People that have been 
born in the last, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years, and I've grown up with cell phones, have a completely different relationship to music than people my age, for sure, and even like 50s and their 40s. When I was young, uh, to go get some music, you were excited about uh, going to hear, you know, I want to go down to the record store, look for, find it, look for the record you want. You found the record you want, then you might even find some stuff that you hadn't seen. But, oh, this looks cool. You bring it home, you play it, you're holding, you're listening to the record, you're looking at the, the cover of the record, and you're really, there's like this, you, there's this ownership discovery part of it. Mm-hmm. When, the, when the online thing came on, it kind of turns it into just this massive database and it's a thing and the people you know the the stuff that everybody's always complaining about there's no royalties anymore and that's true a lot of the royalty stuff has has dried up Mm -hmm. but because i don't think younger people have that relationship to music that that my generation does and because of that i don't know 20 years, 15, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, what the fallout of that is going to be. Right. Uh, or is there any going to be anybody enamored enough to go out and uh, go see whoever they're listening to right now 20 years from now? You know, mm-hmm. I, I really don't know. Um, it's a really, it's a fascinating uh, time we're going through um, on one hand and an extremely scary time on another. Sure. You know? Sure. So when I tell when I tell guys, my whole thing is like the more things you know how to do, um, the more opportunities you have to work. So I'm I'm an advocate of getting multiple income sources going on. Mm-hmm. If you're if you're playing, you should also be teaching, and then watching for opportunities, because the the winner in this game is the guy that can survive. You know, it's right. making it to the end. It's not being a star. It's just surviving. Mm-hmm. And I, re- I remember years ago meeting you and, you know, I was I was in college and I re- you had um, you were just you, you were doing the open close techniques off and you had um, I think you had metal sticks that you were selling as well. And I remember going to your website and I said, wow, this guy's got, you know, there's there's a whole other business going on here, too in addition to all the other stuff that, that he's doing. And, and I didn't realize it at the time, but now looking back, you know, I've realized that, that meeting you then and, and meeting all these other people that are doing the same thing sort of let me know, you know, you gotta, you gotta have multiple things going on and you gotta have multiple income streams because if one dries up, then you always have this other one. So that way you're not, you know, out in the cold. Exactly. So, which is, which I think a lot of people should heed the advice of. You know, I learned that um, by from one uh, just by working with one guy in particular uh, about, and I started working with Ben Sidron in the mid or early '80s. I got a phone call one morning at 10 o'clock in the morning and said that Gordy can uh, Billy Peterson called me. He was on tour with Ben, Richie Cole, Bruce Foreman, and himself, and they had an incident with the drummer they had hired, and they had to let him go. So Billy called me at 10 o'clock one morning and says, Gordy, can you catch a 2 o'clock plane to Chicago and come down and play the quiet night with us down here? <laughs> then we got to go to Milwaukee and Madison, and we'll finish up in Minneapolis. There were four dates to do. I said, sure. You know, this is pre-TSA. I grabbed my drums, went out to the airport, got on the plane, went and did the gig, did or the gigs with Ben. Ben liked me. He thought I sounded okay. I told I told Ben if you ever need anybody, please call me. I'd be way into doing this, and I started working with him. It turns out that uh, Ben we used to be in a Steve Miller band, and one thing led to another, and all of a sudden now I'm working with Steve Miller. But Ben was a really interesting guy because he, when we were on tour, he had many different things going on. He's an author. He uh, has done uh, hosted TV shows. Um, and he had this show when I was working with him. He told me the following kind of story. He had an idea one day. He says, I'm traveling around, and I know a bunch of these musicians. What if I go out and interview them, kind of doing like you're doing right now? Mm-hmm. But to, you know, have him come down to a voiceover studio and we just talk about music. So he went to the local uh, 
public broadcasting station in Madison and said, I've got this idea. Are you interested? And they said, nah, we're, we don't care about that. <laughs> ben thought it was a good idea, so out of his own pocket, he produced, I don't know, it was four shows or six shows, went back and showed it to him, played it for him, and they said, this is great. We'll take some more. <laughs> so <clears throat> we were out, we would be playing at night at a various location, and Ben would be doing his radio show interviews during the day. Uh, this thing ran its course, and then uh, because he produced it and he paid for it, he owned the show. Sat on the shelf for a, a couple of years, and he thought, you know, geez, uh, I got all these interviews. What if I hired someone to um, transcribe them? So he took, pick, you know, cherry picked the ones he wanted, transcribed them, had somebody transcribe them, and he edited. He put it together in a book, and it came out again in Talking Jazz. Hmm. So there's an example of someone who had a vision for some, saw that they could do something, had a vision of how it could be, went out and did it, and then after it was done, had another vision of a second use for the same material, right. which to me is genius. That I mean, is that's genius. Just a, you know, he's, Ben's a really a remarkable guy. Really remarkable guy, great guy, very smart and very talented. Hmm. Yeah, and he's you know just repurposing that content, and that's that's great. It is genius. Yeah, and ahead of his time because I mean that's a you know that's a big thing now that people repurpose content and and but for him to be doing that years ago was yeah was a bit so ahead of his time. I, the takeaway from this and also from being in the studio thing, I actually had a start thought I'd want to build a recording studio so. In the, uh, before I started doing the teaching thing, I actually built a recording studio in my basement. I had a partner, and we were doing, we actually did a bunch of records, nothing, all just regional stuff, and we had a few jingles on uh, broadcast TV, but because technology was becoming cheaper and cheaper, I could see that this was kind of a losing game, too, unless you, unless I wanted to be the full-time engineer for it, which I, mentally, I could, that's not me, that's not my thing. Right. So I bailed out of that and then decided to do the teaching thing again because I figured, okay, I've got, I'll enjoy this. The school opportunity came up and I figured that'd be a great thing to fall back on when this Steve Miller thing finally goes away because, you know, I figured there's no way that this thing is going to last. Um, ironically, <laughs> crazily enough, the, uh, you know, it's still working. I'm going to, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to, be with him as long as he's playing right. and he's not going to quit so you know from depending on the spe and depending on the day you ask me i've either won the sideman's lottery or lost it you know? <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's truly a great gig and it's i'm extremely lucky at my age to be doing what i'm doing at the level i'm doing it right so i'm you know and then i did the i got involved um after they started the school thing, I got involved with uh, my did my website because um, I found I was on one a tour, finishing up a tour with Steve in uh, 1994, 1995, something like that. And I ran into an old friend of mine from Minneapolis out in Portland. I had a day off. I went over to his house and he showed me these headphones that he was kind of doing. He took these shooters' phones and stuffed one set of Walkman speakers on one side and another set on the other side and he says i put the music in here and i put the click in here and i put them on and i said eh, it's kind of interesting got home a week later i'm looking through a lawn and garden catalog and here's a picture of a guy mowing a lawn with a set of headphones with a wire coming out and the caption is shut out the sound of the lawnmower while you mow the listen to music while you and shut out the sound of the lawnmower while you mow the lawn I said, geez, I wonder if those are like my friend's phones. So I ordered a pair, uh, got them. They were kind of low fidelity, but they, they were. They were a hearing protection phone with a Walkman-type speaker in them. Hmm. There was an 800 number on the back. Turns out it was some guys in the same town that I live in, Minneapolis. Two brothers had started a small business. So I knew that there was some potential here for something, so I started talking with the brothers struck a deal with them, uh, trademarked the name, and started marketing. I was the first guy to market hearing protection stereo headphones to uh, drummers, and it was 1995. Hmm. So all this stuff that you see now, the extreme isolation, 
um, metrophones, all of that has been generated by the the thing I started back in 1995. Wow. And I did that, again, figuring that the Steve Miller thing was going to go away so I could have the school thing, I could be doing some private teaching, and run my little my little headphone business, mm-hmm. as well as use the, the headphone thing to sell the books and stuff that I'd been writing for the school. Right. So, so trying to play all these things and weave them all together and um, make, a, make a living from it. Sure. Sure. Now, there, I now have a couple questions. One, um, the headphones, we, I wanted to get into the headphones, but now I guess is the best time. Um, because you have um, tinnitus, too, which is very common for, for drummers to have, correct? Yeah. Uh, and mine varies from goes up and down in level, but yes, it's the ringing in the ears. Mine's real high frequency, like 10k, 12k, something like that. Sounds like a hiss. Yeah, and I'm sure a lot of drummers out there have the same thing, or will have the same thing if they continue to play without protection. I use protection all the time when I practice and when I play because yep. I, I have to because I know that my hearing was getting was starting to get bad. Uh, now your headphones, and pardon my ignorance, but are they? Are they um, isolation or are they noise canceling? Mine are passive isolation. Okay. We have the the first model we were selling twenty years ago um, was an economy model that didn't sound that good. Uh, I went to the um, uh, guys that made them and I said, "Let's make a better sounding pair." I brought a set of uh, Sony seventy five hundred sixes to them. I said, "Can we stuff this into this muff?" So we tried that into the 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 20 dB muff, and that worked okay. Uh, but then someone had sent me or made me aware of a different Pelter muff, this 29 dB Pelter muff. Um, and we put them in there, and it's just, man, it's just they're super comfortable to wear, and they block more sound acoustically than anything else you'll put on your head. I end up selling headphones to people who have bought everything else and become frustrated with the lack of isolation or the inferiority in sound. Right. Um, mine are not, I would not call what I've built reference headphones, but they're they're the best sounding headphones that'll block out the most sound. You can run your cue level, you can play, be playing in just a ridiculously slamming track, and you can have your cue volume set at just a nice, soft, whatever level, minimum level, and you can hear plenty of sound still. If you... Um, switch from those to regular headphones at that instance and you'll see the the ridiculous difference in fact i have many the guys that use my stuff uh, a lot of pro pro guys they'll blow a speaker or something and then they had to finish the session with regular headphones and they just call me freaked out i got to get these fixed like right now i can't play with regular headphones anymore right and I, so that you know that these i have the niche um, I've kind of just staked out this kind of high-end pro niche mm-hmm. to fulfill because I saw other people coming in. I didn't, I didn't want to become a manufacturing mogul. I have a playing career and a teaching career, and you know, you could get involved. You could make an argument for doing that, but that would involve Taiwan and all this other stuff and just a bunch more money, and you know. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of opted to do service my little professional market. Sure. You know? Sure. Like you said, the things that make you happy are the, are the most important. And these yeah. are called Ultraphones, and everybody can check them out at gk-music.com. And I'll link, I'm going to link to your website that has all of your, your books and everything on there as well, so people can, can check that out. Um, Great. I wanted to sort of transition. I, I wanted to talk about, you said, you know, one thing, came, one thing led to another, and, and you got the Steve Miller gig. So I'd like to talk about that gig a little bit. Um, maybe, sure. maybe if we can talk about, uh, you know, some challenges that you have, because you've been playing in this band for a long time. Um, and I think that one part of, of continuing to get better and, and, and maintaining success is overcoming challenges. So what are some challenges that you had through the years with, with playing with Steve, and how did you overcome them? Well, um, it's an interesting thing. First, it's kind of like when you go out um, 
it's kind of doing things at that at that level is really kind of interesting compared to doing it at a jazz level. Mm-hmm. All of the kind of the same goofiness that you've had in garage bands, the same stuff can kind of go on at that high level. There's just a lot more money flying around. Um, the key to surviving a gig, a gig like that is understanding basically three things um, that are expected of you. Uh, one is, do you make the band and the artist sound good? You know, do you do you how how good do you make the band sound? Second piece is, do you understand professional behavior? On time, sober, know the music, right clothing, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, third thing is, can people stand to be around you when you're not playing music? Right. Because when you're doing road stuff. The gig's only an hour, you know, hour and a half, two hours, two and a half hours. Um, but you're on the bus with people for, you know, 10, 12 hours a day. You're around them for 10, even more than that sometimes. So you've got to be able to get along with people. Mm-hmm. Um, musically, the biggest thing that I've learned over the years and it's, it's taken me the, it took me probably some time to get together was to let go of of uh, any musical agenda I had and really service the music the way it needs to be played. There's a tendency for when you go into a gig like this because you got, it's, I mean, you have a lot of people at the show every night. We just played uh, last, a week ago today, uh, today is uh, July 7th, 2015. We were a week ago. We were at uh, in Buffalo, New York. We had fourteen thousand people at the show. Yeah, you know. Um, so it's really, it's kind of just getting your ego out of the ego out of the way and truly servicing the music and doing, being in the moment and playing what's necessary to make things sound good right now. So one huge piece was simplifying. Second piece was is being constantly in the moment. The good thing about Steve's gig, when you have you know when you have a gig that you've done, you do over and over and over again. For example, I probably played Rock and Me, you know, between fifteen hundred and two thousand times. Right. So the you've got to be able to keep that stuff somewhat fresh and feeling feeling good. The one thing that Steve is. Um, uh, good to work for it is that he it's never a rut he just sometimes he'll just change stuff you know just like bang you go, oh wow we're going here right and so you've got to, it, it, it his ability to do that or his desire to do that is for someone who is used to having things be the same all the time drives him absolutely crazy but if you're the longer I and I did at first, it was to me it was I say what's going on here, but as I've gotten older with him, I've found I enjoy it, and I need it because it keeps you in the moment while you're up there in front of these people. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very easy to turn into a robot sure. and play the same thing night after night after night, and that's the danger point where you get in and you're not. You're not delivering the goods with the right emotional content or the right energy, right. Uh, you know. So mm-hmm. that that's that's probably one of the biggest challenges, and just playing, you know, just being really rock solid. That's right. what that band needs. That's my job. Sure, is I just I'm I'm driving the ship, mm-hmm. you know? and and I'm Steve's at the front end of the hook and ladder. I'm at the back end of the hook and ladder steering. Right. You know? And it take you know it takes it takes a lot of maturity to play that way. It's not as it's it's a lot harder to play less than than to play a bunch of notes. That's correct. In fact, I've come up with a little axiom that I've found to be very true: the quantity of pay I walk away with is inversely proportional to the quantity of notes I play. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I, remind, I, I interviewed uh, Rick Morata, and he said, you know, every – I said, how did you t- sort of develop your style? You know, it's really like a less is more approach. He said, every time I went to the club and I saw people playing notes, I tried to figure out a way that I could play less. 
Mm-hmm. And he's like, every you know, if somebody was playing thirty notes, I'd figure out how to play twenty. So he said, mm-hmm. that's how I I got hired all the time because I played, I simplified everything and then took that and simplified it again and simplified it again. What happens is when you do that is you're you're outlining you're outlining the most basic structure of the tune, and you're allowing room for spontaneous for things to happen from the other members of the band, and they have now you create musical space for them as well. And that's the thing that really, that musicians like is that you're, you know, if you're, if you're working with a drummer who's constantly playing, filling up every space, it's like, good God, shut up. You know, there are other people I'm playing here too. The guitar players, I got, you know, a bass player, everybody's got something to say. So by uh, doing that, and then you'll find that, uh, because people will let other other these musicians will let other musicians know that you're doing this and you're going to get more calls because mm-hmm. of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, it's like being in a conversation with somebody and they just never stop talking. Amen. You know, nobody wants to be in that conversation. So, what's the vibe like in the band? Is it is it does it really feel like a a band setting or is it the band and then Steve? Well, in in this, it's it is. It's the band and then Steve because it is the Steve Miller band mm-hmm. and it is a kingdom. You know, I mean, there's one guy that's a star, and if his name is on the marquee, there's going to be thousands of people in the venue. You could put our names up there and nobody'd come. Mm-hmm. So uh, it is his. It is this his thing, and he is the head guy. But it is it is a it is a band in the sense that. We've oh, we've played together for quite some time. The newest guy is uh, joined five years ago, and that's a rhythm guitar player. Oh, okay. And so it's a, you know, it's 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 a band in that sense, but it's not necessarily a band in that it's it's not a it's not a democracy. Mm-hmm. It is Steve is the final arbiter on what gets presented at a Steve Miller show. Sure, which makes sense. Yeah, mm-hmm. and you'd have to be. Yeah. Because you you can't let this thing you can't take a democratic approach and take a uh, risk um, altering to the point that people aren't happy the reason that they're coming there you know they're coming there to hear the hits they're you know that's another really funny observation about show business and when you get up to this level is that you realize everybody wants hit records but hit records in a way uh, create this. All this money flow and all these people coming in, but musically it kind of can be a prison because you're having to play. You people come to hear this, and if mm-hmm. you don't do deliver certain goods, they're not necessarily going to come back, and you're not going to you know next year. Right. right. So um, I call it kind of the platinum handcuffs or the the uh, the cage with the prison with platinum bars. Yep. <laughs> um, so you know it's it's a it's a double edged sword mm-hmm. but it is we it it does it does feel like a band but the steering wheel is always in Mr. Miller's hands right yeah. right what's your favorite tune to play oh wow you know i'm really i i don't necessarily have a favorite one i've i've gotten i like all of it uh in fact one aspect of this gig that I really like is that I get to play a bunch of different feels during the during the show. Mm-hmm. When you go see some acts, uh, it's kind of like they've got two flavors. They've got or like two or three flavors. The kind of the thing that their hit is based on, and then they'll have a few kind of derivative, kind of similar things, and something maybe slightly slower and slight or slightly faster and then they've got the slow ballad section right you know or the right. slow ballad tune steve stuff is really kind of uh we play a lot of different a lot of different fields and he'll throw in some shuffles once in a while because he loves to play old blues so at you know i'm i'm just thrilled that i get to play different it's all these different kind of fields rather than just having to play the same kind of kind of flavor on every single tune you know, sure yeah that keeps it the same tunes. keeps it interesting i have to come to, i've admittedly never seen never seen you guys live but i've listened to steve miller band for years and years and years and always loved them but <clears throat> should come i'll definitely have to come check you guys out live yeah i should man. so the the uh the one thing the, the reason why i know your name is because of years ago um i mentioned 
when I was studying at Kutztown, I studied with Frank Kumar, who turned me on to your open close technique. And mm-hmm. um, can you explain that a little bit to the listeners? And I know that you have videos online that I'll link to because I, I really like the technique and that's actually how I play now. So, oh, cool. Um, not, I, well, let me rephrase that. That's how I sometimes play. I would, you, yes, yes. Well, I, well, I will clarify that, actually. <laughs> but, you know, that's, it's good. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's, that, that's good. It's a useful, you know, it's, it's funny. It's not a, I call it the open-close technique. First of all, it's not mine. Um, it, it, the open closed is that basically it, it's a, it's somewhat of a mis a misnomer, or just to to really clarify the understanding of it. Um, uh, it's the the opening and closing of the hand is basically the hand dropping down into finger position. That's the open stroke, and then the closing movement is the hand coming out of finger position. So you where this is a movement that has been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, the open is the first movement into finger control. Then you'd play some finger strokes and be done with it. And you close your hand and then you could go play wrist strokes. Well, if you don't play any finger strokes, if you open, open your hand, like you're going to play finger strokes and then change your mind, you just go open, close. And what you're actually seeing is the uh, the mechanics that we use when we play double strokes? It's the it's the definition of what happens with these two hinge points of the fulcrum and the wrist and the fingers when you play a double stroke. Mm-hmm. How many drum clinics have you been to where someone demonstrates a, a, a double stroke roll and they'll start with okay play right right and they're playing singles. They're going right, right, left, left, right, right. And they speed this up. And as they're doing this, they're talking, and they'll say, there comes a point where you have to change the two strokes into one movement in order to get the speed. But they they never explain how that happens. Mm -hmm. Open-close technique explains how that happens and also shows that you can actually practice that double-stroke movement very slowly. (laughs) <laughs> like absurdly slow. Mm-hmm. You could go right, right, and do an open close at that tempo, and then you know repeat it with the left hand. So it's not really a technique so much as just a, a mechanical understanding. If um, there are videos posted at the website, and this would be really interesting if you check out one I've done called uh, Tech- "Fundamentals of Drum Technique" or "Drum Technique Fundamentals." There's three. There's four parts to it. On the, um, I, it, they're all good. The third part where it talks about the hinges, I did a demonstration where I put actually dots on my hands, and you can see how this stuff really works and what's what's going on. Mm-hmm. So it's through exploring this first my my innovation in this, um, because it's you know the first time I saw a guy do this was oh my god Marv Dahlgren called me I was 19 years old and he says Gordy you got to see this guy he came through town I think his name was Ted Scorman he was a student of Bob McKee's he could play um, sextuplets at a hundred or if you're drum drumometer nonsense uh, 600 notes a minute with his right hand sitting there going and he could talk to you hey man how you doing. What's up? You know, meanwhile, my right hand is just cooking away. Um, I thought that was really cool. He showed me what he did. I couldn't do it nearly as fast as he could. And he said, yeah, I'm working on my other hand, trying to interlace him and create the world's fastest single-stroke roll. He couldn't get his other hand going. I started messing with my right hand. This is about 1973. And uh, messed around a little bit with the left hand and kind of didn't, get that much, get that far with it, and let it go. Fast forward to, you know, the late 80s when I got approached to do this school, I thought, you know, maybe I should start messing around with this thing again because I'm going to be running the school and teaching this stuff. So I started playing around with it and got my, my left hand to kind of be able to do the rudimentary mechanics. And then I figured out the synchronization of the two things, which is, stupidly simple but i couldn't see it for you know for a while got it so i could synchronize it couldn't do it fast but i could see 
that it made sense, and I started to constantly see parallels with other things. So it's a very similar type of movement to doing the heel-toe conga stuff. You mm-hmm. see guys do what everybody call monoteo. Um, so uh, but that's, that begat the, the first books I did, which were about it becoming a single-stroke role, found a, found a figured out a way to use it to play single-stroke versions of all of the role rudiments, and then wrote a bunch of these role exercises. Kept on messing with it, and one day, you know, I also noticed that you could get from this uh, double-stroke roll if you put this continuous mode da 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 in both hands, but you put them out of phase so that you start with one hand with an open and with the right, let's say, and then you close the right, and as you're closing the right, you open the left and then reverse back and forth, that you've got alternating flams. Hmm. So after looking at this and playing with this enough, I, and I stumbled onto a way of notating it called slow motion, that I call slow motion notation, mm-hmm. I found that I can use this to basically find another way to play all of the uh, PAS rudiments. In a way, it's kind of like a mechanical shortcut, and it shows you how the the double stroke mechanics are used, or a possibility right. uh, of how to to use the double stroke mechanics when playing this stuff. The thing is, is there's there's kind of several answers too. You can when you do this, there is more than one answer to uh, to some of them. But the the most interesting thing about it to me was that when you look at the the percussive art society rudiments, they're grouped into these families. You've got the roll rudiments, the drag rudiments, the flam rudiments, the diddle rudiments, and they look at it, they look at them grouped that way. The open-close technique and slow-motion notation allows you to see a similarities where the, the, identi- or the, the similarities are mechanical, and rather than going vertically uh, up and down with this family, this, it goes horizontally across. Right. So that you start to see that the flam accent, the single paradiddle, and the single drag tap are actually the same mechanical thing. All you're doing is changing the timing of the com- mechanical components. Mm-hmm. And that was like I was just went wow. So then, and that's what some of these guys are doing when they're talking the rudimental guys when they're talking about morphine rudiments, and that caused me to write the. The next book on the open close technique thing, which I call morphine double strokes with open close technique, mm-hmm. um, and it's been uh, it just it's it helps you, it helps the mechanic. It's a soft volume thing. It's not a it you're you're really you're examining the how the end piece of your mechanics is working. You also have an elbow hinge and a shoulder hinge and you can engage those as well. And when you're doing doubles driven from either of those places, you're still seeing an open and closing with the hand, but the quantity of movement is is uh, a little more smaller. Right. But by definition, to get a double stroke, you have to. there has to be a little opening and closing of the hand. If you're not doing that, it's not a double stroke. It's a single. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely, uh, like I said, when, when Frank Kumar gave it to me, it was definitely an eye-opening experience and I said oh man I gotta I gotta dig into this and you know I, I studied it for a while um admittedly probably should have studied it more and now after talking to you I'm thinking man I gotta get back into that stuff a little bit um but I did I studied it for a while and I still some of it has worked its way into my playing um but I think I want to I think I want to go farther with it too so mm-hmm. the, the other advantage that comes from this is that you know it's not about that I'm uh, my goal was to find a new way to play rudiments because the old way was bad. It wasn't anything like that. It was more just about following this little piece, of, and I've kind of built this thing up, which is following this logic. You can get to this stuff this way. It's a different approach. But even past the rudiments, when you're sitting there playing a gig, we're using this stuff constantly. Anytime you play two notes or three notes in a row or uh, two notes followed by an accent. You know, there you can. You're using these mechanics, and when you understand how these mechanics work, your your playing gets smoother and uh, more efficient. Mm-hmm. As I as I age, my my biggest concerns 
are energy conservation and mechanical conservation. I'm trying to save my body and save the energy. I don't have the energy that I did when I was 30 years old. Right. Well, even I mean, even if you can start when you're 20 or 30, it's a it's a good direction to go in. Yeah, and I mean, it's just for survival. I mean, the Steve Miller gig, you got to play. You got to put out some volume. You got to play very firmly, uh, and in order to do that, for me, I've got to make sure all my um, uh, movements are efficient, and making sure I'm attaining maximum tone out of each drum when I hit it. So that's that's kind of like a key to survival of that. Mm-hmm. The thing that the open close thing works great for is when you're working at the other end of the volume scale, you're dealing with much smaller movements. Um, I've always, because of my my initial um, premise of like I'm going to do anything work-wise that comes up, I put myself in all kinds of extreme situations, and it would always drive me crazy after I'd been doing some little stuff that was really loud, it took me a minute to kind of get the loud thing going. And then I'd all of a sudden have to do a gig where I'd play really quiet. And I found I, I, it was, it took me, it took me some time to adapt. The thing that working on this open close technique does for me is it gives me, I can go into the quiet situation and not have this big worry about this adapting thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, you know, conversely, if I've been doing the small thing, when I go to the big thing, it's, you know, it's a little bit of an adjustment, too, but not nearly as much. Right. But right. The, the, there's when I'm doing the Steve Miller gig, I'm really not doing much open-close stuff at all, unless we're doing a shuffle, because mm-hmm. then you're dealing with a, a double stroke, you know, with right. the shuffle. Right. It's, it's definitely fascinating, I'll tell you that, to say the least. And I strongly suggest that for the listeners out there to to head over to drummer's resource and look at the show notes for this page, or just go to Gordy's website, gk music.com and check out all the videos and you can go on YouTube and, and all that stuff and check out your books and you explain it uh, in great detail. And, and it's definitely fascinating and we'll, we'll at least open up your eyes to the different mechanics of your playing. And like you said, it'll, you know, smooth it out a little bit and help you get a little bit more, a little bit more fluid in your playing, which I think everyone needs a little bit more of. Yeah, I think it definitely can help you open some doors for yourself. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I know it did for me. So, cool. so, so, what do we have on the? What do you have on the horizon? What's uh, What's next for you? Well, uh, you just happen to catch me uh, home on a tour. I've been out for about six weeks with Steve, doing gigs, and I leave again Thursday. We've got another four weeks of stuff. I get home for about three days, and then another weekend, and I got maybe two, three weeks off, and we're doing kind of spotty couple weekends a month kind of thing so that's one thing that's the immediate future i got to finish this tour um school will be starting up um, at the uh, end of august beginning of september so i've got that on the agenda um uh, probably you know and then just kind of keeping stuff running at the the um at the website. Mm-hmm. I want to try and shoot some more video. I haven't done really posted anything of me playing at all and kind of using this technique on the drum set. And one of my goals is to get some, some kind of playing examples captured and posted as well. And I've got probably, there's some more, there will be some more technique going into videos to come as well, awesome. as well as a, um, I've got to do a video demo for this other book I've I've written called the Rhythm Library System, which is basically um, rhythm. This is a a book that um, for years there's been this um, thing floating around drum world. Uh, they had a version. I think if you go out east, they say that Alan Dawson uh, kind of was one of the first ones to do it. But basically, where you take the the syncopation book and you can play you read the syncopation book uh and you can fill in this fill stuff around the the rhythmic melody of the syncopation book Mm -hmm. every time someone kind of they showed me i've seen several ways of doing this but everybody that showed it to me they had tons of different rules when you see an eighth note you'd play this when you see an eighth rest you play that i was 
looking at this, and one day it dawned on me: if you took out the rest aspect of it, you the 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 eight or nine pages in the middle of the syncopation book that everybody always seems tends to use. Mm-hmm. The yeah, what's it like? Page thirty-three, I think it starts with. Uh, yeah, or on the versions I remember, it was page twenty-nine. Yeah, I was going to say it's either twenty-nine or thirty-three, depending on which which issue you have. Yes. So yes, those those and every one of those exercises. You could break that down. It's all either based on one, two, three, or four eighth note groups. You've got a half note, dotted half note, quarter note, or an eighth note. Um, so what I did was um, take that idea and say, okay, so if we've got a pattern now, if we create this pattern when you see a half note, you play this. When you see a, a dotted quarter note, you play this. You see a quarter note, you play this. You see an eighth note, you play this. And then I created a database where I um, broke it down. So rather than having jumping in and using all four pieces immediately like you would with syncopation, I created, okay, let's start out with just half notes and quarter notes. So there's a couple pages of that. Dotted quarter notes and quarter notes. Half notes, dotted quarter notes and quarter notes. And then create these combinations. So what it does is, it you know, we all have these... Um, our licks, our favorite little licks. And once you understand how this rhythm library system works, you can look at the lick that your favorite lick and then realize, well, geez, if I add a little bit to it, I could create a, let's say it's a dotted quarter note worth of value. If I add a few notes to it, I can get to a half note value. If I take a few notes away from it, I can get to a quarter note value. So now, rather than having your little fast lick that you play and you go, now you can take it and actually play melodies with it by playing variations so that you're actually selling this slower melody even with all of these, um, uh, with these, all these notes happening. It's kind of being able to step away from the, from the trees and starting to see the, the forest. Right, 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 right. Um, so I want to do, I haven't, that's a real cool thing that I need to, um, I need to get a demo on posted at the website. So that's one of my goals. So I'm looking at this now, I'm on your site, the rhythm library system. Uh, it's a book that you can buy. So is it specifically for, for, um, syncopation or you can use it for any book? No, it's got its own database in. Uh, Uh, the only reason I mentioned it's the syncopation is it, um, because I was talking about how the Alan Dawson thing, well, I, I, uh, when I started the school, the one of the first guys I hired was uh, Paul Stever. He um, he was a teacher at PIT. <clears throat> he was the outstanding graduate of PIT in, I think, 1985 or 1986. He came and started working at uh, school, I think, in eight, 1989 or 90. And Paul showed me the, their version of it that they were using it in uh, out of PIT. And that, again, to me, had too many rules. Mm-hmm. So uh it's a it's a common thing that you can use for drum set stuff or you can use it for rudimental stuff too and bottom line what it does is it takes this technical thing that you know how to do and it 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 allows you to use it more musically whether it's literally whether it's snare drum technique or or playing this fill this wall of sound kind of fill stuff it just it gives you it allows you to to it, it broadens your vocabulary and it kind of opens doors. And once you understand, because the idea is very simple, once you understand how it works, I, there's a bunch of drum set patterns in it, and there's a bunch of rudimental patterns that you can apply. So if you you know if you don't can't think of anything within your own repertoire, there's more than enough stuff to deal with. But once you understand it, then you start looking at what the stuff that you've got in your little bag of tricks and real. Oh wow! I could use this for that. So now you can take your idea and start using it musically, and you've got your own kind of little thing right, right, worked right. out. That's it. awesome. I actually put out a, an ebook. Um, it's a stick control variation, so it's just treatments that you can put on top of the the stick control stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And so I really like this sort of this sort of thing of of taking you know a system and saying, okay, you can use it for this, or you can use it for this, and then it sort of opens up all these other doors. So I'm going to pick this book up because I, I'm finishing up with the Charlie Wilcoxon book, so I'm going to need to dive into something else. Maybe I think this, sure. I think this is going what, to be I'll, the one. I'll send, you, I'll send you a whole package of everything I've, I've done there. I've got about 
at the moment I only I have six books I sell at the website. That would so. be amazing. I would appreciate that so much. And I encourage any of the listeners out there, please check out gk-music.com for all of Gordy's his, his books, the Ultraphones, uh, and check out the YouTube stuff with his open-close technique, and I will link to that on the Drummer's Resource as well for the show notes for this interview. And Gordy, thank you so much for, for taking all this time to chat with me today. I really appreciate it. It was very insightful. I know that the, the listeners got a ton from it as well, so thank you for being a part of it. Thank you for asking me. It's been enjoyable for me too. Great, great, and hope you know. Hopefully, we'll have you. We'll have you back on the show soon. That'd be great. Thanks, Nick. All right. Thanks again, Gordy. I appreciate it. All right. Bye bye. There you have it, guys. I hope you really enjoyed this interview with the one and only Gordy Knudsen, and all the information that we talked about, I'll have linked up in the show notes at drummersresource.com forward slash session. 114. Again, a quick thank you to the sponsors, DW Drums, Drum Magazine, and Evans Drumheads. And like I said, thinking about doing five to seven podcasts a week, maybe a daily uh, Monday through Friday or a seven day a week podcast about everything from goal setting to goal achievement to drumming topics to entrepreneurship within the drumming community, motivation, inspiration, and all that stuff. And they would be quick, like five to 10 minute sessions. And the only thing I want to know is one, whether you're interested in that and two if you would want the podcast to be together with all the other ones or separate so you can shoot me an email nick at drummersresource.com and you can use two words you can either put yes or no and then you can put together or separate so an email with yes together or a tweet with yes together or whatever you want to send over or however you want to send it over but it'll take you 10 seconds to do it so just let me know and until the next podcast keep drumming thank you so much for listening and i'll be talking to you soon peace